Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Ike's Bluff, Evan Thomas. Evan Thomas, author of Ike's Bluff, President Eisenhower's Secret Battle to Save the World. Where'd you come up with that title? Well, originally I wanted to call the book Ike's Peace, but my agent said that wasn't quite sexy enough. So uh, her idea to call it Ike's Bluff. But it does capture something because Eisenhower was basically bluffing with nuclear weapons. Early days of the Cold War, both the United States and the Soviet Union are getting these massive arsenals of nuclear weapons. Eisenhower does not want to have World War III, but he doesn't want to have any war. He's, he's afraid that small wars, he knows from his own experience, small wars have a way of leading to big wars. So he basically sends the message out to the Soviets, don't even think about it uh, or we're going to nuke you. And now, would he have used these weapons in various circumstances? Who knows? He was never too explicit about it, but he really ran an eight-year bluff. Well, you, you quote him in some meetings of his own people kind of suggesting that use of nuclear weapons was not off the table in Korea, Berlin. Uh, he threatened with them. We threatened when the United States threatened with them. We had these crises during the 1950s, a little forgotten now, but they seemed pretty serious at the time. Uh, first, we were in the Korean War, and Eisenhower was determined to get us out of the Korean War. Been dragging on for three years, and he let it be known through diplomatic channels that if the North Koreans and the Chinese and the Soviets didn't come to terms, we would use nuclear weapons. Now, there's a lot of historic debate about whether that threat was the threat that ended the war, but the war did end. Uh, and Eisenhower proceeded in other crises over, these are, again, very obscure sounding, but Kimoy and Matsu, two islands that were off the coast of China. And in 1954 and again in 1958, the Chinese communists threatened to take those islands in preparation for invading Taiwan, the island of Taiwan. That was our ally. We supported Chiang Kai-shek, the head of, uh, and, and, and it looked like we could actually have a real, real war with the, with the American Seventh Fleet uh, intervening. And Eisenhower, in those circumstances, threatened that we would use nuclear weapons against the Chinese. Now, again, would he have? I don't know. Eisenhower never told anybody whether he would use these weapons or not. Again, in Berlin, big flashpoint of the, of the Cold War, the, uh, it was a divided city. Uh, the, head of the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev, threatened in 1958, end of 1958, if you don't, if the West doesn't get out of Berlin in six months, we're going to just take it. And Eisenhower let it be known that if you try that, you're tempting nuclear war. Again, would he have used these weapons? We never got to find out, thank God, but he was basically bluffing with nuclear weapons, and in other cases as well. 
Where did he come up with that strategy? Was he like that as a general or another aspect of politics? Not really, but the, but the general bit is relevant because uh, Eisenhower knew war. Now, you know, he'd actually, he had not been in combat himself. People sort of surprised, the great war hero, Eisenhower. In World War I, he was training troops actually in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, teaching them how to use tanks. So he missed combat in World War I as a junior officer. By World War II, he knows way too much and is way too powerful to be sent to the front lines. But he sees an awful lot of war. He goes to battlefields after the fact. He has to deal with the detritus of war. He has to make all these decisions, sending thousands of young men to their deaths. He has to decide whether to bomb cities. So he's deeply familiar with war. And what it teaches him is that, you know, it's a cliche, war is hell. Well, he wants to avoid war. He really wants to avoid war. Now, some civilian politicians who've never been to war may be a little cavalier about it. You know, you think you can have limited wars or partial wars. Eisenhower didn't believe that limited war stuff. He, he knew that wars have a way of getting out of control. He, uh, he had read Clausewitz on war, this famous German philosopher. Most people, Clausewitz is associated with a cliche that war is just politics by another means. That's not the meaning that Dwight Eisenhower got from Clausewitz. What he got from reading Clausewitz is that war is a mutating monster. You can't control it. Politicians and statesmen who think they can't control war are kidding themselves. So Eisenhower was just determined not to get us into war. But he didn't think the United States could just go home after World War II and, you know, do nothing. We couldn't just retreat from the world. Communism was on the march. Again, you know, we, we think, well, was, was that exaggerated? L look at a map in 1952. Eastern Europe has just gone communist. China has just gone communist. There, there, there seems to be the spread of communism everywhere. The United States, as the defender of the West, as a protector of freedom, we can't just go home. So we have to try to stand up to the march of communism. And how are you going to do that? Well, you can try to fight it, but you're going to you run the risk of getting into World War III. So, Eisenhower, again, Eisenhower basically threatened whether he would have carried through on that threat. We'll never know because it worked. The Soviets didn't really test him. Why did he want to be president at that point? I mean, he was getting up there in years and had a, yeah. had a pretty good list of accomplishments already. Right. Uh, good question. I mean, and it took a while, uh, sort of amazingly. It was a long dance before he, 1945, at the end of World War II, 1945 and 46, Harry Truman, the president of the United States, says to Dwight Eisenhower, if you run for president in 1948 as a Democrat, I will take a demotion and be your vice president. Now think about this. The president of the United States offering to take a demotion to be vice president, that shows you how popular Dwight Eisenhower was after World War II. He was this great hero. Eisenhower said no. It wasn't quite clear whether he was a Democrat or a Republican. But uh, he was, I think, at heart a Republican. And by 1952, there's enormous pressure on him to run because, because the United States in 1950-51, everybody thinks, look, we won World War II, but here comes the Cold War, and the Soviets have the bomb. 1949, the Soviets set off a nuclear bomb. A terribly shocking event to Americans who think they've won this great war. They can go home, home, come home, and now the Soviets have this damn weapon? And, and there's, you know, there's a fear of communism in the country. Joe McCarthy is spotting commies everywhere. 
exaggerating it, but, but actually there is, he's exaggerating, but there is some internal communist threat. Uh, and it's a scary time. And so Americans are looking for somebody they can trust, a big figure, a grand figure, and Eisenhower is it. And uh, so the, both parties want him to run. He chooses to be a Republican, and he wins comfortably in 1952. How did he go about being president? How did he adapt to, to that role as opposed to being a yeah. general? Well, a lot of generals don't adapt so easily. I mean, you, when you're a general, you used to snapping your fingers and having it happen. And, uh, in fact, Truman had a laugh on his way out saying, you know, Eisenhower's going to get in here, and he's going to start giving orders, and nothing's going to happen. Because the federal bureaucracy, you know, they sometimes follow the president's orders, but not always. Bureaucracies have a way of resisting Congress. A lot of pushback. But Eisenhower, though he was a general and a career military guy, was a great politician. Now, he didn't call himself that. He said he, he, said he hated politics didn't, or he didn't like politics. But you don't get to be supreme allied commander in World War II without being a pretty good politician. And his great strength as a general was not his military strategy. It was his ability to get along with others and to deal with big egos. I mean, imagine the egos that Dwight Eisenhower dealt with. Stalin, de Gaulle, Churchill, General Montgomery, his British counterpart, Patton. Eisenhower had a kind of an easy smile and a kind of a light manner, but he was tough and these steely eyes. And so he was a... He was a very good politician. You say he was willing to appear slower and sweeter than he really was in order to get people to do his bidding. Yeah. Well, he'd even play dumb sometimes. I mean, there's a great story, 1955, there's a press conference, presidential press conference, and his aides, and the subject is Red China. Red China is threatening to start a war. And uh, his aides say, oh, Mr. President, be careful. Be careful with what you say. And Eisenhower says, oh, don't worry, I'll just confuse them. And he was intentionally opaque. He played dumb. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know too many powerful people who are willing to be played dumb. Most of the ones I know want to be the smartest guy in the room. I've suffered from this myself. It's a natural <laughs> human tendency to want to show off. Eisenhower had so much confidence that he didn't have to play that game. You know, once you win one World War II, Maybe you don't have to prove anything, or of course we all have to prove something, but it just, he had a, he, I, there's an expression that keeps coming back to me about him. He had the confidence to be humble. He was so confident that he could be humble. You know, in my experience, I don't know about yours, but arrogant people usually are really not confident. They're, they're weak, they're frightened. I know when I'm belligerent, when I'm arrogant, it's usually because I'm afraid of something. So my wife will remind me uh, correctly. And, uh, you know, Eisenhower was so confident that he was humble and, and he could afford to play dumb. And you say in the book that he governed by indirection. What's that mean? Uh, I didn't discover this. There's a, a professor named Fred Greenstein at Princeton uh, who, when Eisenhower's papers opened up in the late 70s, early 80s, out at Abilene, went into him and discovered that the, the rap on Eisenhower had been that he was kind of this caretaker kind of genial, grandfatherly guy, played a lot of golf, kind of not there really. And that image stuck. It was a, it was a, it was a Kennedy hit job. It was a brilliant Kennedy way of making, contrasting the young, dynamic JFK 
with the slow, grandfatherly, golf-playing Eisenhower. But anyways, a lot of people believed it. Until uh, Fred Greenstein got in there and going through Eisenhower's papers realizes that Eisenhower's fingerprints are on everything. And he came up with this term, the hidden hand presidency. And that term is stuck. At least, I'm not sure the general public knows it, but scholars sure know it. That Eisenhower operated by a kind of a hidden hand. Again, not showing off, behind the scenes, not taking credit, sometimes not taking blame either. Although, although that's complicated because he did have a highly refined sense of responsibility, but being clever about when to show his head and when not to. And so he used a kind of, it was a kind of a hidden hand form of, of government. Who were his key people? Well, he, you know, he was always proud of his cabinet, but frankly, I don't think his cabinet was all that meaningful. John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State, was a powerful figure and very bright. And at the time, in the 1950s, People thought that Dulles was running American foreign policy. One thing that Fred Greenstein and others, including Richard Immerman, who's a professor here at Temple, discovered uh, was when they got into his papers was that Ike was running the show. Dulles may have been the guy out front talking, but the guy actually running the show. For instance, uh, back to the title of the book, Ike's Bluff, the key speech uh, announcing the Eisenhower Doctrine was a speech by John Foster Dulles. And in that speech, he said, if the communist tries any place, we choose uh, the, the place and means of answering them. That was code for nuclear war. And it was known as massive retaliation. You mess with us, we're going to retaliate massively. Now, that speech was given by Dulles. And for years, everybody thought that was Dulles's thing. Well, Immerman, Professor Immerman, gets into his archives, and he finds the speech, the key paragraph is written by Eisenhower in Eisenhower's hand. So, and Eisenhower's, you know, let, well, let, let Dulles enunciate, because it's kind of useful to be a little bit in the background. Let, Dull, let Dulles be the bad cop, be the heavy, be the tough guy. That way, Eisenhower could be the good cop, the diplomat, everybody's friend. And uh, so, even in his most powerful cabinet secretary, Eisenhower was pulling the strings. In the Defense Department, Eisenhower was really his own defense secretary. There were several defense secretaries, but Eisenhower was really the guy doing it. Herb Brownell, as attorney general, was a force and I think a good advisor uh, for Ike, but Ike was running his own government. You paint a picture in your book about Eisenhower who, on one hand, really wanted nuclear disarmament and on the other hand was doing a, a massive buildup yeah. of nuclear weapons. This is a difficult thing and, and one thing that's something that I struggled with. Uh, and I don't have a great, clear uh, answer about this because both are true. Eisenhower, throughout his presidency, talked about disarmament. He gave a famous speech in 1953 when he first comes in called the Chance for Peace. And he talks about for every jet plane we build, you know, we could build 10 hospitals. And for every tank we could build, you know, and he's doing these kind of moral equations. So, and he, he does start us down the road of, of disarmament or tries to, you know, probing the Soviet Union. In 1955, he proposes open skies, which would allow both, basically both sides to spy on each other. 1958, he comes up with this limited test ban treaty. So, he's, so he is doing things on disarmament. But, as you say, at the same time, the arsenal grows from about 1,000 nuclear weapons when he comes in to about 18,000 when he goes out. That's a lot of nuclear weapons. And so what happened here? Well, some of this is Eisenhower's strategy depends on massive overkill. The message to the Soviets has to be, don't even think about it. Don't even mess with us because we have this awesome power 
and we can turn, leave you, a, as a General Curtis LeMay put it, I think it was a smoking radioactive ruin in two hours. So he wanted to have a strong strategic air command. You know, some of your viewers, viewers may remember Curtis LeMay, General LeMay. Bombs he became, away with Curtis bombs LeMay. Bombs away. He became a kind of a parody figure in a way, although not a parody at the time. But Eisenhower gave him pretty long leash, maybe too long. I mean, in retrospect, they built too many weapons. Uh, I remember talking to the number two guy at the Atomic Energy Commission, which in those days uh, actually built the weapons. And he said that every year he'd get a call from the Pentagon. He'd say, what is your maximum production capacity this year? And the guy would tell him. And then that would become the Pentagon's minimum requirement, bureaucratic games. So the AEC built as many weapons as they possibly could. Should Eisenhower have controlled that better? Well, I think Eisenhower himself believed that because in 1960, as he's getting ready to retire in November 1960, he's presented with the what they call the SIOP, the Strategic Integrated Operating Plan. That is our plan for turning the Soviet Union and China into radioactive dust. And Eisenhower's kind of shocked by it. You know, whoa, what have we done here? And you kind of go, wait a second, you're president. I mean, you let this get out of control. And I, I think he did. You know, by 1960, he was getting a little older and he was getting a little tired. And I think he did kind of lose control over this process. Um, some of the rap on Ike being a, not vigorous enough is true. In fact, Eisenhower himself, in a letter to Henry Luce, who created Time, Time Inc. and Time Life, uh, Eisenhower wrote that he pleaded guilty to being too easy a boss. This was part of his style um, give people a lot of rope. And in the nuclear area, maybe we, we did build too many weapons. So he allowed that buildup to happen, or he, he was the driving he force well, behind it? He, he, he was a driving force amongst a vigorous strategic arsenal, yes. And, and also an experiment. As a military guy, he knew the next war would be different from the last war. So he wanted a lot of experimentation. So they were experimenting with all sorts of tactical nuclear weapons. My favorite was the Davy Crockett, which was basically a giant bazooka on the end of a jeep firing a nuclear weapon. It was said at the time that it was the only weapon in history where the kill radius was greater than the range. Get it? You fire that, you're dead. So we built all these kind of exotic weapons. And Eisenhower was for that kind of experimentation as a military guy who believed in technology. But it got, so he pushed that. But it did get out of hand. We built too much. We did too much. And he, and he failed to restrain it, particularly towards the end. In your book, you also write about um, CIA operations. The uh, Mossadegh in Iran yeah. was overthrown, yeah. and there were yep. plans to assassinate uh, Trujillo and Patrice Lumumba mm -hmm. and, and Castro. Were those, again, things that Eisenhower just let the CIA go off and do their stuff, or did he have his fingers in that? Yeah, very mysterious. A lot of debate about this. I mean, a, there was a congressional committee that looked into this in the 1970s, the Church Committee, and it never got to the bottom of it because... There was this thing in, the, in those days called plausible deniability. And the theory was a great nation has to have an intelligence service that can do all sorts of dirty stuff. And the chief of state needs to be able to plausibly deny that he or she knew anything about it. So the whole system is set up so that the president can say, I didn't know about that. Uh, and that, when they started digging into this, that's where they, they sort of ended up with the president saying, I don't, you know, he, Eisenhower was no longer alive, but his minions 
saying, you know, he didn't have anything to do. Now, what was the truth? Complicated. My own take on this is that Eisenhower would say in general terms, boy, that Lumumba's a bad guy, uh, or that Trujillo's a bad guy, or that Castro is a bad guy. And uh, at the CIA, which didn't need a whole lot of urging, Richard Bissell, the chief of operations over there, very interesting figure in American history, little known but very powerful, he would take those general exhortations and take that as an order to try to murder these people. And that's how they went from Eisenhower kind of saying, well, that guy's a bad guy, to the CIA interpreting it as a execution order. They called it executive action in those days. Now, your viewers will remember, we never actually killed anybody. CIA was a gang that couldn't shoot straight. They hired the mafia to try to kill Castro. And they never got it done because I think that mafia was basically picking up a marker, an IOU on the federal government. They didn't really mean to kill Castro, but they had blackmail material. It got very messy because the CIA let themselves go down a road that they shouldn't have. But Eisenhower bears some responsibility for that. He had too loose a reign on, on the CIA, and he should have fired Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA. And the brother of John and Foster. And the brother of John Dulles. Foster, because Ike was warned, and this is in my write about this, Ike is warned in 55 and 56 and 57. They're periodic warnings that the CIA is getting a little bit out there. And, you know, they have these early successes. You mentioned Mossadegh and, uh, and Iran, 1953. We, we overthrew, we, the United States, the CIA, overthrew the head of Guatemala in 1954. These are considered to be, considered to be victories at the time. Now they look like bad ideas because the blowback and the, you know. But at the time, it looked like, gee, we can fight the Cold War on the cheap using secret covert operations. We can contain communism. We thought that Iran and Guatemala were drifting leftward towards communism. So if, at first we thought, this is great. Man, we'll use the CIA to do this. But by the late 50s, <clears throat> these operations are not going so well. There's a failed coup in Syria, a failed coup in Indonesia. And there are warnings to the president. You know, the CIA is kind of out of control here. And you need to get rid of Alan Dulles. And he didn't. He didn't. What was his role in the Suez Canal situation? Uh, this is one of these crises that's long since been for forgotten, but at the time could have led us into nuclear war. And briefly what happened was that in uh, uh, Egypt there was a strongman named Nasser, nationalist, and he seized control of the Suez Canal, which had been built by the British and French and controlled by the British and French. And the British and French, in kind of a last gasp of empire, decided they were going to take it back. So they got together, conspired with Israel to invade Egypt to take back the Suez Canal. But they did not tell the United States. Big mistake. The United States is the great superpower. Eisenhower did not appreciate having these guys because it threatened to bring in Russia on the side of Egypt. And we could have had a nuclear war breaking out in the Middle East in 1956. So Eisenhower basically stopped it. He went to the Brits and said, I'm going to devalue the pound. Well, he, didn't, he signaled it subtly that he would devalue the pound. There was a little run on the pound. Uh, and he let it be known, again, secretly, but typical Eisenhower, hidden hand, back channels, that if 
the oil dried up because the oil came through the Suez Canal. If the oil suddenly dried up and all of a sudden Europe, Britain had no oil and winter was beginning, no oil, don't come to the United States. We're not going to bail you out. So Britain got the picture. Oh, my God. And, they, and Anthony Eden, the prime minister of Great Britain, stopped the invasion. And so those are the days when the United States could say, stop. And I'm not sure we could do that today. Uh, but the, the United States was the, the essential great superpower in 1956. And Eisenhower was a pretty tough guy. But beneath the benign smile, there was a pretty tough guy. And he shut down that invasion fast. I learned from your book that when Joseph Stalin died, uh, Eisenhower was not awoken to be told that news. Yeah. Well, you know, people who have been in, in real war situations know that you've got to preserve your rest. Uh, politicians want to be awakened. You know, Well, if you can't affect, he didn't want to be awakened if it couldn't make a difference. The famous example is uh, General Marshall, who was the chief of staff of the Army. And when we were invading Normandy, Europe, D-Day, he didn't want to be awakened and then because of the time zone. It's happening earlier. He doesn't want to be awakened in the middle of the night because there's nothing he can do about it. He knows that he needs to preserve his energy and his strength and to be needlessly, pointlessly waking up, even though it's exciting and you want to know. These military guys understand they got to preserve their strength. And so it's a kind of wisdom and confidence that says, hey, don't wake me unless I have to make a decision. And there was no decision to be made. So don't wake me. What was he like to be around? Ike? Yeah. Well, I think he was warm and sunny often, and he had that wonderful smile, but he could be pretty tough and pretty cold. And he had a temper. You didn't, you didn't want to see that temper. It was like peering into a Bessemer steel furnace, said one of his aides. Uh, and now the public didn't see that. But his advisors saw it. He had these cold blue eyes, and his, his temple would start to throb on the side of his head, and bam. Uh, now, it would pass, but it could be a little scary and intimidating. He was also, you know, senior military guys, they're not big on gratuitous flattery. You know, uh, he's not telling you what a great job you did all the time. You know, you do your job, you're expected to, keep it going. Uh, so he could be formidable and a little intimidating. Did he smoke or drink? He sure did for many years. Uh, he smoked four packs a day until 1949. And then he said, as he put it, I gave myself an order to quit. Uh, I think the real story is a little more complicated than that. But he did quit in 1949. Uh, did he drink? Uh, yeah, I mean, in, in times of stress, some. He tried to have a, a rule. John, his son, told me uh, it's basically a five-ounce rule. This is the 1950s. Five ounces of scotch, a couple of drinks, and maybe a little tiny bit more. And he was pretty disciplined about that. Now, towards the end of his presidency, uh, there were a couple of times I read in his doctor's diary, uh, his doctor kept a daily diary, he, a couple of times he said to his doctor, let's get drunk. <laughs> Nothing going on that night, you know, let's tie one on. Uh, Eisenhower had a sense of pacing himself and when you could relax, and so occasionally he would uh, take a few extra drinks. But I don't think that often or that, that often to excess. Uh, I don't think he had a drinking problem in any way. You say in your book that um, he had never settled on any one church. He went now mostly for appearance's sake. Yeah. He was a Mennonite. His parents were Mennonites. Uh, uh, 
uh, actually they were, well, they were cultists really. So he grew up in a, in a very strict religious setting. And his mother read scripture to him. In fact, she had a great saying, which he always remembered, which was uh, Eisenhower had a temper. We were talking about Eisenhower's temper as a little kid. He was so upset once that he couldn't go to a Boy Scout thing that he beat a tree with his fists until they were bloody. And his mother took him aside and read scripture to him and said, He who conquereth his own soul is greater than he who taketh the city. And Eisenhower used to repeat that, saying, My mother taught me how to keep my temper, you know. And one of his aides said, I thought what a poor job she had done <laughs> because he would lose his temper. But, but the point is, she read scripture, highly religious household. But Eisenhower himself, uh, I think, was religious but not, well, believed, was a person of faith, but didn't really love organized religion, didn't go to church too much until he was political advisor said to him when he became president, you've got to join a church. So he joined the Presbyterian church and got baptized a couple of weeks after his inauguration. And he would go to church on Sunday, but I think it was more for appearance than anything else. Now, having said that, I believe he prayed. Uh, I believe he believed in his maker. Uh, when he was dying, he said, uh, I'm ready, take me. Uh, I don't know if he believed in the hereafter, but I think he was a believer. I could probably just skip through and find all sorts of comments you made about what he was like and have that be the, the rest of the interview, but I do want to do a couple more of those. You say he was coldly, ruthlessly pragmatic. He liked to be in the company of others, but he trusted no one but himself. I think that's right. I mean, he didn't. He had some close friends. Uh, he had an aide named Andy Goodpaster, uh, who he was entrusted, but Goodpaster was his aide. Goodpaster called him Sir, Mr. President, you know. So he's close, but as a staffer. Uh, there were a couple of generals, General Clay, General Grunther, who were his friends, bridge partners. But were they really close to him? I don't know. Um, you know, he, he, he had a good marriage in many ways, but they never talked shop. Mamie and Ike didn't talk shop. They didn't talk about world events. She was comforting and loving and affectionate in an army, old-fashioned army wife way, supportive. But did they talk about the affairs of state? No. Uh, he was close to his secretary, Ann Whitman, but again, she was staff. She loved him and cared for him, but he, she was staff. Uh, you quote John Eisenhower, the, the yeah. son, in your book a lot. What kind of relationship did he have with his dad? What was his Com job? Complicated. I mean, John Eisenhower begins his own memoirs with the line, I sometimes think I was born standing at attention. Can you imagine being the son of General of the Army, Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, you know, Eisenhower used to lecture his grandchildren on deportment. And there's a word we don't use much these days. And he would, Susan told me, he would come up behind them, he had these giant hands, and he would grab them by the shoulder blades and straighten their posture. Pretty intimidating figure. So John was loving with his father, and I think his father was loving with John and really loved him. I mean, I could feel the affection. But a little uh, anxious about him. Never quite sure if he'd lived up to him. I mean, as, as, how could you possibly ever live up to? And also remember, young John's an army officer. In fact, the Lord's work in strange ways because Eisenhower, John Eisenhower's graduation day from West Point is June 6, 1944, D-Day. Talk about being overshadowed by dad. 
And I, there's a photograph of Ike and his, with his mom. Ike, young John Eisenhower was in his dress grays. He had to hide at the bottom of the car as they're driving away so the press don't see him. So his own great day is just totally overshadowed. Um, this is a funny story. John Eisenhower was, went to Korea as a major and uh, was in combat. Now, it wouldn't happen today. You, uh, the son of a president wouldn't. Or a, but in those days, he wanted to be in combat. And, and, and Ike knew that his son needed to be in combat to serve his country, but also for his own advancement. And so Ike said to John, you can go to the front line, but if they capture you, you have to shoot yourself. And they gave him a gun. And uh, when John came back from Korea, he went to a shooting range, and the gun didn't work. <laughs> so, and John was worried that he'd get captured, because that was a real risk over there. Well, so you say in your book that uh, Stalin's son was captured in World War II yeah, and, killed, and himself. killed himself. And that was the example that Ike, Ike used that example. You know, Stalin's son, he was captured, he killed himself. So, uh, a little lugubrious. But uh, John Eisenhower, you know, loved his dad, worked for him in the White House. He was a great help to me, because... John was not only his son, but he was working with Andy Goodpaster, who I mentioned earlier was Ike's, uh, basically his staff secretary. And so John Eisenhower is there in the room for a lot of key stuff and was a great source observing his father and was one of the people who told him he should have fired Alan Dulles. We talked about Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA. John didn't stand up to his father about too much because who you know, be pretty hard to, but he did say to him, you know, you should have fired Dulles, and, and his father blew up at him and basically said, I'm the president and you're not, or words to that effect. Uh, uh, so I think tough being a, the son of Dwight Eisenhower, but I think it was a close bond. He was the only son. The, another son had died and as a little boy, also very tough. Uh, but John was just great with me. I mean, he, it's rare that a son can step back and talk so dispassionately about his father. We had this little scene that I repeat in the book. We were talking about the two sides of Ike, the warm, genial side and the cold-blooded Ike. And I said, you know, 50-50, and John Eisenhower said, no, make that 75% cold-blooded. This is a son talking about his own father. How did the press treat him? Pretty well. Uh, the press liked Ike. He was likable. Was he always on his 25% good, likable when he was out in public? Almost. Those eyes would flash occasionally. But I, the public did not see the temper. Uh, he was very available to the press. He gave more press conferences, I believe, than anybody. I should check this fact. But he, he, he gave hundreds of press conferences basically every other week. And uh, now he could be dodgy and intentionally hide the ball. But, but he, was, he was available. I mean, modern presidents don't meet with the press at all. Now, the press is nastier today than they were then. They were nicer and more respectful. So it was easier to meet with the press in 1955 than it is in 2013. Still, he was not afraid of the press. Uh, he would have some of them in for kind of private meetings. And generally, I would say they were respectful and they liked him. They made jokes about him, as press corps always does. Make, made fun of his syntax. He used to mangle his syntax. Uh, but they were, they were pretty respectful, as, as was the country. Eisenhower's average approval rate was 65%. Now, that's a number that modern politicians would kill for. Again, different era. We shouldn't measure this era by that era, but it's a pretty good approval rating.
You say in the book that he he read uh, Tacitus and Plato and Nietzsche. Yeah. Was he an intellectual, or is that something he did in a his closet youth? intellectual? He he liked to play the plain guy. He didn't want anybody to know he listened to classical music. He liked to say his favorite band was Fred Waring and the Pennsylvanians. Uh, and it was. I think he loved Fred Waring and the Pennsylvanians. He had him play at his inauguration. But he also was deeply well-read. And when he was a boy, it's interesting, his high school yearbook predicts, when they do those predictions about what Dwight Eisenhower is going to become a professor at Yale, history professor at Yale. That's their, so they're predicting that he's going to be a scholar, his own peers. He was, there was a guy named John Fox Connor, who was a military general, who basically took Ike under his wing and educated him, had him read Clausewitz, but also Plato and Nietzsche, Nietzsche and Tacitus and all that. So he was a, he was a classically educated humanist, well hidden, but he was. Why did he pick Gettysburg as a place to live? It's beautiful and uh, historic, and uh, he didn't. His, Amy did not want to live on the coast; too many bugs and too hot. So he, he wanted a farm. He got it pretty cheap. I can't remember what he paid for it, but not a, not that much. Uh, and took an old farmhouse and rebuilt it. And of course, being proximate to the great battlefield, there was meaningful for a general of the army. He himself had been in Gettysburg in World War I training troops with General Patton, the great General Patton. They were training him how to use tanks. They had like one tank. Uh, so he was, it brought back those memories. But he also would walk the battlefield. He would take uh, heads of state, Churchill, out on the battlefield in his golf cart. And this was always interesting to me because the lesson that he taught about Gettysburg about, was about the third, about the third day. Ike was a great admirer of General Lee, the great General Lee, because he was good to his troops, but he really was critical of General Lee on the third day because Pickett uh, came to Lee and said, I want to attack the Union line. And Lee said, do it if you can. Now, to Eisenhower, no commanding officer ever says, do it if you can. You either can or you can't. Don't do it unless you think you can do it. And this is Eisenhower's total military strategy overwhelming force. Don't get into fights that you're not going to win. Don't do it conditionally. And of course, the South, the Confederates, were driven back off the line, and it would turn out to be a low moment in General Lee's life. Obviously, it was classically the turnaround of the Civil War, and the South never rode so high again. So Ike would teach the Battle of Gettysburg as a lesson in command failure by the sainted General Lee. How much time did he spend in Gettysburg? A lot. Uh, you know, once they restored the house, they went up there, I don't know the number of days, but on many weekends, he, they, he played at the Gettysburg Golf Club, played golf there, and it was beautiful. He liked sitting on that he had a porch, closed-in porch, screen porch, uh, which looked out on those beautiful hills. They actually looked at, at uh, the ridgeline where the south had mounted their, their men. The, the, his farm had been a, a, a dressing station, and soaked with blood uh, after the third day. So it's close to the battlefield. Uh, it's beautiful. You can see the mountains in the other direction. And he spent a lot of time there. And after he left the presidency, he also would go out to uh, the California desert in the summer. He didn't like the Gettysburg winters, uh, cold and gray. So he would go out to uh, the, the Palm Springs, basically, uh, Palm Desert, to play golf in the winter. Was the Gettysburg farm a working farm? Yeah. 
He, used, he liked cattle. Uh, he was a cattle guy. And uh, uh, yes, it was a working farm. How profitable it was, I'm not sure. But, but yeah, it was a working farm. You, you describe how he had Khrushchev come and visit him at the yeah. Gettysburg farm for a summit meeting. He used that farm brilliantly and uh, in this way. In 1959, Khrushchev comes to visit, and Eisenhower is very eager to get some peaceful coexistence going. It's a scary time, Cold War. And Eisenhower is working with Khrushchev because Khrushchev has this ultimatum. The West has got to get out of Berlin or else. And uh, so they, they, they meet at the farm, and they're not getting anywhere. Oh, excuse me. They meet at Camp David not far from the farm, up on the, I forgot how you pronounce it, those mountains up there, the Catoctons. Catoctons, the Catoctons mountains. And so they're at Camp David, and it's not going anywhere. So Ike takes a nap, and he has an idea. He calls his daughter-in-law, John's wife, Barbara, and says, get your kids all spruced up. Get them on the porch of the farm in a half an hour. Then he takes Khrushchev, and they go to Gettysburg. I forget how many miles, like 20-mile drive. And, uh, and so Ike has Khrushchev meet his grandchildren because he knows that Khrushchev has grandchildren too. And it'll soften him up. And by gosh, it does. Khrushchev backs off his ultimatum. It works. And uh, that's a, not the end of crises in the Cold War, obviously, but it ended a pretty big crisis just by human intelligence, you know, this human touch that Eisenhower had of using his farm and his grandchildren to soften up uh, the fearsome Nikita Khrushchev. How often did he meet with Khrushchev? What kind of relationship did they have? Well, distant, because in those days, the Soviet Union was a foreign universe. You know, we had, the, C the CIA had failed to penetrate the Soviet Union. The first CIA chief got thrown out because he got caught in what they called a honey trap, set up with a prostitute. Uh, so we didn't know much about the CIA. In fact, Ike didn't know that Khrushchev was running the Soviet Union until 1955 when they had a first summit, first summit meeting of the Cold War. And Ike didn't know who was running the Soviet Union. He, uh, they, there's several possible leaders. There's a gap between Stalin's death and when yeah, Khrushchev was... Stalin dies in the winter of March of 1953. This is two years later. And there's been a succession struggle inside the Soviet Union. And the American intelligence community is not quite sure who's in charge. But at the Geneva summit in 1955, it's clear that, uh, that Khrushchev is the guy really running the show. Because Eisenhower offers this thing that both sides can fly overhead and spy on each other, basically, to, as a way of uh, holding down the arms race. And the Russians seem okay with it until Khrushchev comes up. Nyat, nyat, nyat. No, no, no. And so, oh, uh, Ike realizes Khrushchev is really in charge here. So that's the beginning of this relationship. And Khrushchev is very blustery, and he's a bully, and he's always talking about our factories are churning out rockets like sausages, and we will bury you know that famous phrase, we will bury you. Very scary guy. Uh, but, you know, Eisenhower is shrewd, and he knows some of this is bluster. But he wants to meet him. And so he arranges to have him come over to the United States in 1959. And it's a great trip. Uh, Khrushchev, they lands in Washington, and uh, Ike immediately takes him in a helicopter to look at the Washington suburbs in rush hour. He wants to show them the material wealth of Western society. 
And of course, Khrushchev says, oh, it's a lot of cars and traffic. But he does, at the end of the flight, says that he'd like to buy three American helicopters and a Boeing 707. So he wants our technology. Uh, they go to Hollywood. He goes, he meets Marilyn Monroe. But then he comes back to, to uh, Gettysburg and, uh, and to Camp David. And they have a meeting of the minds. And, uh, and it really is progress in the Cold War. And Khrushchev invites Ike to come back the next year. In fact, Khrushchev starts to build a golf course for him in Russia. But it's screwed up because our U-2 spy plane gets shot down. So we did end up flying over. We did. We, we were flying pictures. secretly over with the, with spy planes, the U-2. Which, and by 1960, the Soviet anti-aircraft missiles can fly high enough. And they knock one down right on the eve of this summit meeting. And there goes the summit meeting because Khrushchev is, oh, my God, you're spying on us. And it's really the beginning of a scary time in the Cold War. The, the scariest period of the Cold War really was about summer of 1960 to the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962. That's when we really were at the most risk of nuclear war. And many of your viewers, ones who are old enough, will remember October 1962, uh, the missile crisis. That was one scary time. That was, really was scary. I mean, there really was a risk. Eisenhower had a lot of health problems during his time in office. He did. He had, he had a, well, for one thing, he smoked all those cigarettes and Think of the stress, but he had a heart attack. How old was he when he took office? He's uh, born in 1890, so he's 63 years old when he takes office. And uh, uh, he was not in the greatest shape. Uh, I mean, he, he was fit in a way, but he had a heart attack in 1955, a, a real heart attack. And that's early days of heart attacks. I don't really know them. In fact, his own doctor misdiagnosed it at first. Then he has a stroke in 1957. He has a stomach operation for elitis, uh, obstruction of his bowel. and A lot of stomach problems. A lot of stomach, a nervous stomach, but also a physical piece of it. Uh, his stomach would act up when he was under stress and under pressure. So he's kind of beat up. Uh, he's also he's the oldest president ever. By the time he leaves office, he's the first 70-year-old in office uh, when he leaves office in 61. So he's not in the greatest health, and he has trouble sleeping. Uh, he starts taking sleeping pills and probably gets hooked on second all, which is a, uh, has a barbiturate in it. It's not a sleeping pill many people take today, if any, because it you can hallucinate. I mean, it's, not, it's, a, it's a strong drug. Uh, so he's, he's not in the world's greatest shape by the end. Did he ever think about not running for a second term? Yeah. Uh, he was sort of thinking about it in 55, but then... Oddly enough, having this heart attack makes him really think about it. And he decides, and this is complicated because Ike liked to say there's no such thing as the indispensable man, and, but really he believed he was indispensable. He believed that he was the guy for this time in our history, caught in this Cold War, trying to keep the peace, and there was nobody else who could do it better. Now, Ike, I, I mentioned earlier that he had the confidence to be humble. He did, but he had an ego the size of Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, he thought he was the guy. And, and I, I think that was right. I think he, he was the guy. What did he think about Kennedy being elected president to succeed him? Well, at first he thought Kennedy called him a whippersnapper and little boy blue. 
he thought he was too young, too immature, really not ready. Uh, he was a little suspicious of the father, Joe Kennedy. But then he met Kennedy, and he warmed to him. He could see what an intelligent young man he was. Uh, Kennedy has an early disaster at the Bay of Pigs when a CIA-backed army uh, invades Cuba and is thrown into the sea in a couple of days. And it's a disaster, and, and, and Kennedy goes to Ike, and they talk about it. And there's a bit of a tutelage going on there where Ike basically educates Kennedy on how to talk to generals and hear what they're really saying. Did they have much of a rapport? Like, did they did they communicate much once Kennedy was in office? Some. I mean, he calls him during the missile crisis. Kind of, what do, what do I do here? And and Ike stiffens him, says, you know, don't, you know, steady as, these aren't the words exactly, but basically steady as you go. Uh, the Soviets are not going to grab Berlin. Stay calm, Mr. President. It's going to be okay. Uh, and so that, that kind of relationship. But I, I wouldn't call it warm or intimate. You say that he thought that LBJ was a phony. Yeah, I mean, he got tired. LBJ could be a phony. I mean, he was a, a over-the-top pal in some ways. And LBJ would do these speeches, oh, you know, summoning the fates. And, and Eisenhower would make fun of him privately, imitating LBJ. Uh, how, oh, Lord, how long? And uh, so he made fun of him as a pal. But, but he treated him respectfully when he was with him. And he knew that LBJ was a pretty good politician. You say that, uh, getting back to some of the uh, facets of his personality, you say Ike was not ashamed to cry and let his staff see him do so. He openly wept when he was told that Senator Robert Taft, his new friend and sometime ally, had died of cancer. Well, I mean, he was a tough soldier and all that, but, you know, you can be a tough soldier and cry. That's not impossible. And I think Ike knew intuitively that some show of emotion was not a bad thing. It's humanizing and it's real and... You know, Ike was, Ike was real. What was he good at? Bridge. <laughs> really good at bridge. Uh, he knew how to bluff. And, well, you don't bluff and bridge, but he knew how to count cards, and he knew how to anticipate. Sounds from your book like you would not have wanted to be his partner in bridge. No, he could be abusive. In fact, his wife and his son quit playing with him, refused to play with him, because he would say, why'd you play that hand? You had to be, you know, in bridge there's signaling of a kind. Uh, with the way you play your cards, and uh, uh, you had to be smart and 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 be able to work. Uh, he, I like to play with General Grunther, who was the NATO commander, uh, and uh, that's about it. Uh, I could be a little grumpy, um, a little grim. Playing golf with him, I don't think was a total ball of laughs, because. He was a pretty grim golfer. Golf strikes me as maybe not the world's best game for Ike. I mean, he did it to relax, but I don't know. Your golfers out there will know this. It's not a game for a perfectionist. There's a lot that can go wrong. And Ike, you know, I, I have a scene in my book. He throws his sand wedge at his doctor. It's a pretty bad scene. Um, throws his club at his doctor when his doctor says, nice shot after Ike muffed a shot coming out of a sand trap. How many rounds of golf did he play in his eight years as president? You Over 800. That's a lot of golf. Uh, he basically had a Wednesday game, a Sunday game. He played at Augusta, the Masters, uh, you know, where they hold the Masters, over 200 times. He f would fly. They built a house for him on the course at Augusta. It's still there, uh, known as Mamie's Cottage after Mamie. Uh, that's, yeah, he played a lot of golf. There's a lot of things we won't get a chance to talk about, like the, the Red Scare, the McCarthy era, uh, the ending the Korean War, the, the Little Rock civil rights situation. What, 
which one should we talk about before we run out of time? Well, civil rights is interesting because he gets a lot of grief for not taking the lead. He didn't believe in the bully pulpit. He was not a moralist that way. But again, the hidden hand, he did a lot behind the scenes that people didn't appreciate at the time. He desegregated the D.C. schools. He desegregated the military. And when his when federal authority was defied, when these federal judges who are trying to desegregate schools, when one was defied by the governor of Arkansas, Eisenhower didn't kid around. He sent in the 101st Airborne, bayonets drawn, no National Guard. He was believed in overwhelming force. And if, if you defied a federal judge, he wasn't going to, you know, he was coming in with full force. Did he like being president? I think he was comfortable with command. It was a calling for him. He, you know, his first night in office in his diary, he writes, well, big problems, big challenges, but kind of familiar. I mean, imagine your first night as president thinking, eh, you know, I've been Supreme Allied Commander. I, I, I can handle it. That's not what he said, but he was accustomed to command. So, yeah, uh, now he thought it was stressful, and he wrote that in his diaries, and he complained about the pressure he was under, and the, it was enormous pressure. But it was a calling for him, and he felt duty. He didn't use the word ambition. He was a soldier. He spoke in terms of duty. Duty, honor, country. Those words for Dwight Eisenhower had real meaning. You, you referred to bully pulpit a couple times. How was he using television? He was an earlier user of it, and he had a good smile. And so there's some debate about this. I actually think he was bad at TV. Uh, he, he couldn't read from a teleprompter. He didn't like teleprompters, so his, he'd go up and down like that. And he seemed to stumble, and he looked old. But there is other people say, no, he was an early user of it, uh, televised press conferences for the first time. He was a reassuring presence. Uh, yeah, I get that. I mean, if you're scared, he is a reassuring presence. That's true. When he left office, did he feel like he had been successful? Yes. Uh, you know, he was once said, you know, people were talking about the 1950s era of peace and prosperity, and Ike once privately said, by God, it didn't just happen. He knew what a role he played. And some people accused him of be being a do-nothing president. They did. Uh, he wasn't too happy about that. But, you know, he didn't try all that hard to change that image. He, 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 knew, he, wanted the, he knew the records would be opened up. He knew the scholars would get in there. They'd find out soon enough that he'd been a... And they, and they did. Uh, his, you know, he was asked how he should be memorialized by his family, and he said... Just don't let them put me on a horse. And he's going to flip about it. He, he got in a lot of glory. He, like all of us, he wanted to be remembered well, and he didn't love his critics, but he was reasonably calm about the whole thing. Who all did you talk to? You, we talked about John Eisenhower. Who else did you talk to to get this, this portrait that you put together? Well, I talked to some academics. I talked to some scholars who, who knew him. Uh, and, and use their books. I mentioned uh, uh, Professor Ehrman, uh, Campbell Craig, uh, uh, go wrote a great Yale PhD thesis. So I used scholars for sure. Um, in terms of people who are around him, they're really, I mean, to speak of, there aren't, there were some junior aides, but not nobody really knew him and worked that closely to him. John was, the, was by far the best source. If you could talk to Eisenhower, what would you ask him? Well, I'd love to know, would you have used those nuclear weapons? Were you really bluffing? Now, he wouldn't have told me, <laughs> but I would have liked to have asked him the question. Do you have any kind of guess what the answer would be? 
Yeah, I, I think maybe in the early days, 53, 54, if the North Koreans had violated the armistice or the Chinese, he might have. I think by 55, these weapons are just too powerful. There are too many of them. By then, he just wouldn't have taken the chance. What number of book is this? Eight. What else have you written on? I wrote uh, The Wise Men with Walter Isaacson. I wrote The Man uh, to See about Edward Bennett Williams. I wrote a book about the early years of the CIA. I wrote a biography of Bobby Kennedy. I wrote a biography of John Paul Jones. I wrote a book called The War Lovers about Teddy Roosevelt. I wrote a book called Sea of Thunder about the Battle of Leyte Golf and the Pacific War. And now I'm writing a book about Richard Nixon. What do you do in your, t is that a full-time job writing for you? or you I teach at Princeton, uh, a course in narrative writing and an introduction to journalism. What approach are you taking to Richard Nixon? Sympathetic. Uh, Nixon is a very complicated guy, and I'm going to humanize him because he's not the cartoonish figure that people think he is. Obviously, you know, you can listen to the tapes. He swore he could. There, there's, there's some unattractive sides to Nixon, obviously. He could be paranoid, but there is another side to him that I don't think the people quite get uh, of consideration and decency. He aimed high. I mean, he did a lot. You know, he was one of five people to be on, one of two people to be on five national tickets. Greatest landslide in 1972. He opens up China, detente, creates the EPA, desegregates Southern schools. I mean, how many 20th century political figures? accomplish as much as Richard Nixon. And the fact that he could do it when he was such a shy person who was in some ways uncomfortable with politics is amazing to me. So I'm trying to get at that. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out for that one. Okay. Meantime, we have been talking with Evan Thomas about his book, Ike's Bluff, President Eisenhower's Secret Pl Battle to Save the World. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.